Today we're going to be in Luke 23. Better now than uh, at the end. The last time we spoke about the events leading up to and including the crucifixion in general, we spoke of three men and some women that came in varying contact with Jesus in his last moments. And today, we're going to speak in detail of the crucifixion proper for the express purpose of giving us a better appreciation for the sacrifice that our Lord and Savior made for us. A little bit about crucifixion. It was an ancient form of capital punishment with some reports that it is currently even being used today in some barbaric regions of the world. It started as far back as the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, but the Romans honed the procedure to a perfect form of torture and deterrence for its victims. They had to strike fear into the hearts of their subjects to maintain the order or the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Because about 50% of the empire at one time was slaves and they couldn't afford an organized rebellion. Roman crucifixion was reserved for slaves, the most vile criminals, and deserting troops. Uh, For the most part, it wasn't used on women or Roman citizens. There was a heavy scourging, uh, beatings, the carrying of the cross, and walking through the city all contributed to the death of the crucifixion victim. The victim often died of a combination of hypovolemic shock, which is just a major blood loss from the body, and mostly exhaustion asphyxia, which was a suffocation from being unable to lift themselves up to get more air. In the end, as the victim was dying, animals and birds would pick and chew at the bodies while alive as the bodies were left out in the open to decompose. as a warning to those who would challenge Roman authority. And of course, in this case, Jesus, his body was taken down. So he didn't meet that because the scriptures were fulfilled that he wouldn't be left out in the open. Uh, You know, he'd be buried and rise again on the third day. Uh, Reserved for slaves and vile criminals. Think about that. Jesus came as a slave or a servant. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus died as a slave or a servant. He came as a servant, and he died as a servant. The second thing, Jesus died as a person with a vile reputation, but it was because he took our reputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one verse, says, For he made, for God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He switched reputations at the cross. As he died for our sins, we took his righteous reputation, and he took our sinful reputation when we believe in him. Daniel 9.26, written many years, many centuries before Jesus even came to the earth, it said that the Messiah would be cut off or killed, but not for himself. It wasn't for his own sins. He didn't die because he did anything wrong. He died because we did wrong as sinners. As we're getting the images on the screen, I went through uh, many reputable um, sources for this information about the crucifixion and what actually happens. One I liked the most, which I quoted last Sunday, was uh, the 1986, volume 256 of the Journal of the American Medical Association. And of course, they compiled evidence from other, uh, you know, other sources. What happens is, if you go with the hands and the feet, what happens is, tell me how well you can see this. Can you see that in the back? Okay, good. 
This is the radius bone, right? And these are the carpals. And what happens is they would take a spike about the size of this pointer, a thick iron spike that was tapered at the top so the victim couldn't get his, his hands and his feet off. A very detailed way that they did this. And they would drive the spike between this bone and these bones, or these bones in general. Uh, and and it would, what that would do is that would effectively crush the median nerve and the radial nerve that runs up through here. Okay? Uh, it has been proven that a body can be held by the ligaments between the bones because they're very strong. They have a lot of tensile strength to them. So what happens is you crush these two nerves and it would send at the same time bolts of like electricity down the arm, up through the shoulder and into the, the base of the neck. It was a very, very, very painful uh, way to go. Um, and then if you look at the feet, you see that the, this is the, the top view if you're looking down and this is the bottom if you're looking from up from the bottom of the feet. What they would do here is this is where the tibia would attach to the talus bone, okay, uh, by, li by ligaments. And what happened was they would drive the spike somewhere through this area, either the navicular bone or the, the cuboid bone. Uh, and what, what that would do is it would go through pretty much at an angle and it would make, the spike would make its way through to the calcaneus bone, which is basically just the heel bone. Sounds like that song, right? The heel bone's connected. But anyway. So what you have is when they would do that, and actually they have artifacts, people have artifacts, not of Jesus, but of other crucifixion victims, where you actually have the spike through all these years, it's still intact. The iron spike is actually still through the calcaneus bone. Right? It's pretty interesting. But what would happen is when they drove the spike through that portion of the foot, it would go through the perineal and plantar nerves, causing incredible pain that would shoot up the back of the leg and make its, it would make its way up to the root and the sciatic nerve. For those of you who have, known, have, have had sciatica, it's very painful. But this would be even more painful. The more the trauma, the more it would send those feelings up the nerve. Okay? The other thing is, um, and I, I have to talk about the, a little bit of the dynamics of crucifixion, because there's a little bit of apologetics mixed in with this. A lot of people, just like People deny the Holocaust, which I don't know how you could do that after seeing the footage. But people have denied the crucifixion also. Uh, how, could, how could he hang like that? Well, it wasn't like they hung the victims in midair, okay? Uh, the Romans used something called the sedulum, which was a crude seat, and also a subpedneum, which went underneath the feet. And what that would do is they would, it would keep the victim also from sliding, and they had ropes that they would bind from this part of the arm to the, um, the pedibulum, which is the cross piece of the cross, okay? So definitely holding him there intact. Plus, in physics, it didn't have to, he didn't have to hang. Uh, there was a coefficient of friction between his back and the wood, and there was, there was friction there too. So he, the, the crucifixion victim could be literally held there for days and weeks with the instruments that the Romans used to keep them up there. The other thing is... Uh, we talk about, and as, as if you do really well in this and you, you memorize it, at the end you can get three credits towards anatomy and physiology if you want. <laughs> but in John's Gospel, there's a little dialogue. And again, this is, I, I make it very inclusive. Meditate on this, this. I'm actually having fun with you know, helping you to understand this. But meditate on this because there's a lot of naysayers out there. And it's good to know why you believe what you believe. First Peter 3.15 tells us that. But there was also um, 
a situation in John's gospel where there's Thomas says, you know, doubting Thomas, I won't believe until I can actually put my hands or my fingers through the wounds in his hands. Now, in the Greek, the word for hand is chayr, or in that particular exchange is chairos. And that word meant anywhere from, it could be the finger to the wrist to the arm. So this whole hand and arm is part of that word. In the New Testament, I checked out Strong's Concordance, there is no word itself for wrist. That one Greek word is used for the whole uh, part from the finger to the arm. Now, later on in Greek, because uh, languages evolved, so to speak, there's many different forms of Greek. As the Greek language went to different Greeks, now we have modern Greek, which is different from the Koine Greek, which is different from some other Greeks. But as the language evolved, they named a different word for wrist specifically. And that word is harpas, where we get carpals from. Okay? So it all kind of fits in and makes sense here. Did a lot of study on this. Okay, so what you have going on is a few things. Number one, you have the, uh, the pain through, through the hands, the arms, and the legs. The, all four limbs were in excruciating pain, which means from the cross. And then what you had was the, they, they would lift and stretch the arms out and lift them across the patabolum, which would fix the intercostal muscles in an, in an, um, an inhalation state, okay? Uh, not being able to exhale very well. And then you had them trying to get air and lift themselves up, but every time they did that, there was pain in the limbs. In addition to that, the scourging at the back, uh, all the the rawness and the the skin tissue that was opened up would be rubbing up and down against that that wood. So it just was an incredible form of of pain and torture. So this, this was all going on at the same time. Okay, now we're going to go into... 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 33. It says, and it was where we left off the last time, and when they had come to the place called Calvary where they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. The word Calvary comes from the Latin Calvaria, which comes from the Hebrew Golgotha, which means the skull. I've seen pictures of the hill that's just right outside Jerusalem, and if you look at it from the side, there's deep pockets in the top where it looks like eyes, really. It's sunken in, and then there's also pockets in the middle. It actually looks from the side like a skull, and that's probably where they got the name from. So we're um, Skull Chapel, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I just learned that. Isn't that great? But anyway, in the Old Testament, we also see another situation where a father sacrificed his only son uh, and he came back to him. And you look at that story in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac. And if you look at that story, you see the incredible types between the Old Testament and the the resurrection and what's happening here. Uh, Many believe that the actual hill uh, where he went to sacrifice his son, Mount Moriah, is, is the same hill as Calvary. And again, many people believe that from doing research. But as far as the mocking goes, 
This was a macabre form of entertainment to watch these crucifixion victims. People would come and it was a spectator uh, sport to them. You had the mocking from the spectators, the soldiers, the thieves, and they all have the same theme. Well, save yourself. Why don't you come down from that cross and save yourself? As the expression goes, be careful what you wish for. If Jesus did save himself, which he certainly could have, there would be no hope for mankind. He had to go the distance. He had to go all the way with this. Jesus actually displayed a fantastic feat of strength by staying on the cross and dying that atoning death for our sins. As a man, he had those perineal nerves and he had those median nerves and he had those carpals and he had those bones, right? And he still felt the same pain that a human would would, uh, feel. As a matter of fact, I believe that he didn't take the initial uh, drink, which was uh, with the gall, was a, considered a mild analgesic or painkiller because I, I believe that he wanted to, he had to go through the whole thing and he didn't want anything to dull that. But he stayed on that cross. And, he, and again, for our benefit, he did that. Now, I see people fall into one of two categories when you mention the crucifixion. Just like, just like this society, just like these people. Some mocked, some were sad, some believed, right? And we're no different. You either have a reverence for Jesus when you speak about the crucifixion or you have a mockery. Usually people fall into two categories. There was a, a, a much older gentleman in one of the local eateries and um, actually my wife started witnessing to him and he very, looks very sickly, obviously has some physical issues and um, you know, probably he'll meet his maker before I do, all things being equal. But my wife started to witness to him and then I came and I talked to him and I talked to him about Jesus Christ and how he died on the cross for our sins. Well, that man, you would think that I insulted him. He said, that's preposterous. And he started cursing when it came to God. I was like, whoa, you know. Um, I thought I could take him, but I figured I wouldn't go that route, you know. (laughs) But I did try to show him the love of Christ, and, you know, obviously I didn't get anywhere that day, but that's what you see. People are almost insulted when you say that. You know why? Because there's accountability factor. Why? I have to be accountable to God? Well, I have to believe that Jesus died for my sins or I'm dead in my sins. And it's just a rebellion. You know, it's a rebellion that leads to mockery. In verse 34, we see that Jesus starts to speak some phrases here. Now, because of the, uh, the, the fixation of the body, where we talked about how the, 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 the ribs and the intercostals were fixed, uh, it would have been very difficult to speak, Okay. That's why most crucifixion victims were relegated to curses or shouts of pain because they couldn't carry on a regular conversation. I don't know if you realize this, but we breathe or we speak on exhale. Well, you try it sometime when you go out later on. Take a breath, you speak. I take a breath, I speak. It's very hard, if not impossible, to speak on inhale. We just don't do it. That's not how we're made. So it would have been very difficult for these people to speak, but the Bible records some speech made by Jesus and the thieves, and it's very telling about their characters. A lot can be said about a person, especially in the last moments of their life, their words and their behavior. Jesus spent the last hours on earth desiring to pardon the awful sins perpetrated against him at this time while he was being crucified. It's bad enough he's dying, but people are mocking him and insulting him. He says, one of his first expressions are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, bearing in mind all the things that we just spoke about and the pain that he endured, this is what he said. So the question is, what can be said about us? 
What would our dying words be? What about when the pressure is on? What about when people wrong us? You know, how do we behave? Do we make others miserable when we're miserable? When things go wrong, do people hide from us, from the fallout? Uh Uh-oh, here comes Joe. He looks like he's having a bad day. Is it obvious when we're having a bad day, right? I see some of you laughing at that one or pointing to your spouse. That's not good. But when things go wrong in your house, does the dog find solace in the doghouse with your, with your spouse and your kids right behind them, right? Or do we emulate our Lord and Savior? You know, you see all these tombstones, you know, beloved father, great guy, philanthropist, right? What if tombstones were accurate? What if you had to put the truth on a tombstone, right? <laughs> I mean, would you want your tombstone to read, he was a really crabby guy and people tolerated him? (laughs) Or do you want that thing, I mean, not that it matters once you're dead, but um, it should be, how about if it was accurate and it said, "This, this was a good man, this was a good woman. They emulated as best as possible their Lord and Savior. If you go to John, well, don't turn to it, but in John 19 also adds another short dialogue not uh, recorded in Luke where Jesus puts his mother Mary into the house of John the disciple. While he's on the cross, he says to his mother, Behold your son. And he says to John, Behold your mother. And it says from that day on, John took her into his home. Okay? So what you have here is last-minute housekeeping so mom would be taken care of. But not only that, it was charity for a widow. She wouldn't have gone into John's home unless if her husband was still around. That culture really wouldn't have that. But... As with the women last Sunday, when the women were sad for Jesus as he was going to be crucified, he said, don't worry about me, I'm worried about you. If this is what they do in the greenwood, what are they going to do in the drywood? So Jesus always had concern for others, no matter what his situation was. And taking all the Gospels into the account, and this is the best way that I like to study. When I read the Gospels, I like to go into the other Gospels and see what Matthew thought was important. Was, was just as important or more important. You see a lot of harmony in the Gospels, and then you have things that are peculiar to a specific Gospel writer based on his vantage point. But according to all the Gospels, Jesus was crucified around 9 a.m. and died six hours later, around 3 p.m. their time. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive this due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is an interesting exchange between Jesus and these two criminals crucified on either side of him. The first guy, was it out of desperation? Was it out of anger? He challenges Jesus to free himself, and he wanted to be freed also, like he deserved it, right? According to the other guy, they both deserved to be where they were. The second guy appears at first to mock Jesus, according to Matthew 27. It says, initially, they both engaged in this behavior, but he's then appalled at the disrespect given to Jesus. Why? Well, I believe that he was changed even while he was on the cross, I believe he saw, the, again, the words and the behavior of Jesus in his last moments on the earth, his concern for others, uh, you know, just the way he, he, he handled himself. And I think it had an effect on this, this second guy. But the first guy, I believe, uh, thinks he's entitled to freedom. 
You know, he, he wants Jesus to free himself and take me off the cross while you're at it. The funny thing about entitlements, entitlements, we are a nation that is filled with entitlements, however you want to look at the word. Uh, people think that they're entitled to everything. Even Christians, I have to say, we, sometimes we have this sanctimonious attitude that we're entitled to stuff. We're not entitled to anything. In the resurrection, in the, in the kingdom of heaven, we're going to meet Christians from Africa, from Iran, from, from the Philippines, from different countries where they're persecuted, right? And we're going to see the scars of their body. We're going to see the testimony, the, the willing to, be, to, to die for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We're going to be embarrassed, I think. Well, those of us with those really bad attitudes, uh, entitlements, people go around feeling their parents owe them something. The government owes them something. Everybody owes me something. I tell you what, one guy felt he was entitled, and the one guy said, hey, I, I don't deserve anything. I'm a sinner. So humility is the opposite of entitlements. So the second guy admits his crime, and he says he deserves the punishment that he's getting. Amazing. This man repents and believes at the last moments of his life. That afternoon, the thief was going to be with Jesus for eternity. Now, the other uh, portion of Scripture says not only were they were thieves, but more, more of robbers. And if you go into the original Greek, there's an element of a violence there. It's not only that they stole something, but they were literally like, they had like pirates back then. You know, they would wait for people, lay in wait, and then they would attack them, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they would beat them, take their clothes, take their belongings, and leave them half dead. So these robbers were pretty bad dudes, right? Well, it's never too late, or actually go to, um, when you get a chance, meditate on Matthew 20, which is the parable of the day laborers, which is one of my favorite parables because it shows that, uh, that if you come to the Lord, even at the last moments of life, he is so merciful, you really repent of your sin and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have those two elements, you will be received into everlasting habitations. So this shows a few things. Number one, it's never too late to turn to God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's never too late. But on the other hand, I say, why wait? Why wait another minute? Why say, well, I, I'm, I'm just waiting for this and I'm just waiting for that? There's all these little speed bumps that people throw up to God. Uh, I'm going to do it, but I want to get this done first. Why wait? I say I shoulda. I mean, I, I think that, and look back in my life, it would have been great if I would have come to the Lord even sooner. But we don't need anything to be saved. We see that also. The Bible plus theories don't work. If you look at Islam, if you look at Judaism, if you look at Christianity, if you look at um, you know, the large majority of all the religions together in the world, they use in some portion the Bible as a guide. Uh, they all use it. All the people, even the cults that I just mentioned, they have the Bible, but unfortunately they add things to it. It's the Bible plus the Watchtower. It's the Bible plus the Koran. It's the Bible plus the Book of Mormon. It's the Bible plus, um, you know, fill in the blanks, right? These are the Bible plus theories. What's interesting is the Bible is the common denominator. Unfortunately, people, where all the divisions come from is the adding to the Bible. There's no prerequisite to salvation except for repentance and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So then you might say, well, what about the church? <laughs> if that's the case, why am I here, right? The church serves its purpose. And I can't wait till we get to the book of Acts because we're going to really see 
what the church is supposed to be according to the scripture and really what the church is not supposed to be. People have high expectations, but there's certain things that the church is supposed to provide according to the scriptures. So if you were on a desert island and you didn't go to church, but you repented and believed in your Lord Jesus Christ, you would be saved. Just because you're geographically challenged doesn't mean you can't get into salvation. And you see that with this guy on the cross. What about baptism and what about communion? It's been commanded by our Lord, but obviously the criminal didn't have the time to do this. He was on a, on a cross, right? So baptism and communion are commanded, and we should be observing those. However, if you, at the last minute you repent and you believe, it's, that's not required for salvation. And what I look at, too, is uh, baptism is kind of an identifying with the world. You know, you identify with Christ to the world. You get baptized. And communion is really an identification among other believers. Last thing, or another thing that this does is it eliminates the doctrine of purgatory. This doctrine was started by Gregory, Gregory the Great in 593 A.D., uh, almost six centuries after Christianity was established. Uh, believe that their uh, basis was in the Maccabees, but certainly the basis is not in the Scripture. And the last thing about this was Jesus was a polarizing figure. He forced many people to take sides. You were either on the side of God or you were on the side of Satan by default. And you hear a lot about polarizing figures, but it's not always a bad thing to be polarizing. depends on what you're causing somebody to take a stand for. If you're just um, overbearing and you're polarizing because of your personality, that's not good. But if your presence and your, the, the testimony of the life that you lead and the words that come out of your mouth are causing people to look at God and eternity and that causes polarization, then so be it. Verse 44, and it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. There was a hiatus of darkness through the land for three hours between the sixth hour and the ninth hour, according to the scripture, or between 12 noon and 3 p.m., according to their reckoning of time. Then Jesus' last words, very last words prior to expiring. A few things in some other scriptures. Matthew 27 records Jesus saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's taken directly out of Psalm 22. That may stumble some people. They may say, well, I don't get it. Jesus is God. Jesus is always with God. And now he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which he took that from Psalm 22 that David uttered, I don't get it. Well, you've got to look at it this way. Jesus took a double hit on the cross. Number one, he was taking the sins of the world upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said he had no familiarity with sin. And that word indicates familiarity based on experience, no experiential knowledge of sin. So for the first time and the last time in eternity, the Son of God is taking sins upon himself and he's clean. That's something that's hard to understand. The second thing that happened to him that day was because of that, he was separated from God. Again, the first and the last time in eternity, think about this, Jesus, the Son of God, was separated from God. Okay, so... Now you can kind of understand why he said that. The other thing he said is, it is finished, John 
And the Greek word, I'm sure those of you who come from uh, Calvary Oldbridge, he, he says tetelestai in the Greek. And you've heard it's an accounting term, meaning the debt is paid in full. But there's also another meaning to that word tetelestai. That word was a victorious military reconnaissance phrase. And what it literally meant was mission accomplished. They would go, the troops would go in, they would do what they had to do, they would complete their mission, and they would say, Tetelestai, mission accomplished. What victory? What are we talking about here? Well, he fulfilled all of the types and a large majority of the messianic prophecies this side of the second coming. And the victory over sin and death. Sin and death no longer can hold us. It's a temporary thing that we will experience here, but it will no longer hold us. And the third thing he said is, into your hands I commend my spirit, Luke 23:46. Jesus did what he set forth to do. There was nothing left for him to accomplish on this side, again, of the resurrection. The veil of the temple was torn, the Bible tells us. Uh, the, the, if you read the Old Testament, there were standards for this, this veil. There was the, uh, the temple. There was the most holy place. And then there was a room, a smaller room that was separated from the, um, the most holy place to the, you know, the, I'm sorry, the holy of holies, the most holy place to the, to the other portion of the temple. And what it was separated was with this huge veil. It was a thick curtain that was multi-layered and it was very, again, very thick, sort of like a door in a sense. And what that did was the Ark of the Covenant was in the, the holy of holies or the most holy place that box, that gold box with the seat and the cherubim and the wings touching, and inside was, you know, the Ten Commandments and some other uh, items. But God said that he would literally dwell on that, that box there. Now, only one person could enter that Holy of Holies, and that was once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. And he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat, and God would accept that sacrifice if it was done properly, and that's it. Then he would come out. If anybody came in there and they did anything that was wrong or somebody wasn't supposed to be in there, God would, would end up striking them down because they would be in his presence. So what you saw was in the Old Testament was a division between God and man because of, of sin. What the veiling or the uh, ripping of the, the veil in the temple and, and spreading it in half from top to the bottom indicated, God was indicating that there is now fellowship with, between God and man. And Jesus bridged that impossible chasm. He was the bridge between God and man. Unfortunately, religion with all of their rules and traditions have aided in widening that gap today. Uh, it's a simple thing. Repent and believe. Be edified, Ephesians 4, in the word of God. Be conformed to the image of Christ. Okay, these are all good things. But uh, over the years, there's, there's been an over, overbearingness of, of religion to force you to do certain things and um, do certain steps before you can have salvation, and that's not true. God will take you as you are. The veil of the temple has been torn so God is saying, come now. Now is the time, now is the day of salvation. There was a, a story, I was at a, a Gideon's dinner uh, Friday night, and uh, it was a funny story about a man who was in the military, and he, he said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, I'm going to come to God, I'm going to repent of my sins, uh, but not until I get married. I don't think he even had a girlfriend at the time. So he ends up getting married, and on their, they go to this, their honeymoon, and there's a hotel, and he opens up the drawer, like the first night, he opens up the drawer and there's a Bible. And he said to God, well, not this soon. So time goes by and he ends up, him and his wife end up, uh, you know, repenting of their sins and believing and, and becoming Christians. But the interesting thing is, again, we have all these speed bumps. I have to finish college. What does finishing college have to do with your salvation? It doesn't have anything to do with it. 
and all these different reasons why people wait to believe on Jesus Christ and accept that free gift. Uh, we see that there's in uh, Matthew's Gospel, 27, there's a great, there's a great earthquake, okay, and the, the graves are opened up and people come out and they're appearing to people in, in the city. Uh, the earthquake has been done before. It's been a sign of, of God's judgment. It's going to happen again in, in Revelation. Uh, and the graves, not really sure why this is occurring, but it, it just seems like, well, Jesus died, and the Bible tells us that he went down to Hades and he opened up and he freed the captives as according to Isaiah 61 and Ephesians 4. And, he let, and we've spoken about this. He's, he's freed the, the, the souls who were in waiting and waiting and waiting until the Christ would come and die for their sins. So there was some, definitely some spiritual activity going on at that time. Now, could they actually uh, go up to be in God's fellowship? I don't think that could happen until Jesus was resurrected because Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. So, again, very interesting thing to ponder, uh, what, all these uh, supernatural things that were happening. In verse 47, going back to Luke, it says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed with him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. In John 19:26 through 37 you see another part of the scripture that fits into this chronologically. Okay, John 19, 26 through 37, I'm not going to read it. But what you see is the Roman centurion piercing Jesus on the cross, and he takes the spear and he pierces his side okay, to see if he's dead because they have to break the legs, because they have to take him down because of the Passover. Right? So the piercing of Jesus' side, a fatal wound a Roman soldier would be familiar with. So if he wasn't dead, he's going to make sure he's dead, and he pierces him. The Roman soldier would also be familiar with the response from someone who was reacting to that wound, knowing the Roman soldiers dealt with death all the time, knowing if somebody was alive or somebody was dead. Okay, and this is important too because there's uh, again the apologetics part. I, I like to really educate you when it comes to the scriptures. There's a lot of theories out there. The swoon theory that Jesus was taken down from the cross and he was kind of in a you know a tired state. And they put him in the, in the, you know, they buried him, they put the rock over, and Jesus actually didn't die, and he just kind of pushed the rock out of the way after all that, losing all the blood, getting stabbed with the spear, and Jesus pushes the rock out of the way. He just was a man, and he, hey, look, everybody, I'm here. I can't imagine him last very long after that. But those rocks uh, were very big, and if you take the mass of the rock and the size, you can calculate how much it weighs and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, a thousand pounds or more. So it, that definitely didn't happen. Now, what's interesting, too, is if you read John's Gospel, it says that when the Roman soldier pierced his side, blood and water came out. The Greek word haima for blood is where we get hemo in the English, right? But what you have here is in, in, in the first... I'm sorry, use first... In, I can't read my notes here. <laughs> what you have here is that the Greek sentence structure is not like our structure. So if you look at the Greek and you try to understand Greek, it's difficult because in English, everything flows. You have an order to the sentence. In Greek, when you read Greek, there's really no order to the sentence. And what you find out is in the Greek, the blood and water uh, were, were, were spoken of in that order. Blood, be, I'm sorry, the, the, yes, the blood and water. So what they're saying in the Greek is the first thing in a sentence shows prominence. Okay. So what you have here is that it was mostly blood that came out when the, when the soldier uh, pierced him with that spear. And why is that important? Because, again, people will 
say, well, that's how, where could that water come from? What, what's that all about? What you have is the majority is blood and some water. Now, follow me here. The water would come from pleural and pericardial effusions. Now, follow me. Simply, that means from all the medical uh, things that he went through, the biological aspects of this whole procedure, you would have water gathered around the heart, the pericardium. I had this, we have a nurse in the back, and she's shaking her head, yes, good, I'm, I'm doing good. The pericardium surrounds the heart, and, and what happens is you would have a water that would build up around it. The blood would separate, and it would be a plasma. And also, there would be in the lungs, there would be a fluid building up in the lungs. Most likely, that sphere, to get to his heart, would pierce at least one of the lungs and go into the heart. And coming down, running down from that spear would be some water and mostly blood. So it all makes sense, right? Matthew 27 uh, tells us that the Roman centurion believed. First he says this was a righteous man, and then he says truly this was the Son of God. And that's significant. We're going to get why it is. I'm sure the darkness for three hours, the earthquake... Uh, the bodies from the graves certainly helped this man out believing in the supernatural. But uh, not everyone had the same reaction as him. Some just beat their breasts and went home. Oh, that's pretty terrible. What's, what's going on? And then they go home. Now, remember, a few services back, we talked about the difference between repentance and remorse. How Judas showed the remorse, but how repentance is far more than remorse. So some of these people may have had remorse, felt bad about what was happening, but certainly the repentance wasn't there. Now, I'm going to end this with reading two portions of Scripture. If you want to turn to Psalm 22, it's mostly known as the Psalm of the Cross. And while you're turning to Psalm 22, I'm going to read a few verses. Keep in mind, while I'm reading this, that this was written a thousand years prior to Jesus Christ. So a thousand years before anyone even knew who Jesus Christ was, this Psalm was written. It's a Messianic prophecy. It's a psalm of David. It starts out, and, and as you're reading, think about all the things that we just went through, all the activities that happened on that day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, who inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All these who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. One thing I want to bring out is, okay, so why we... Um, but I am a worm and, and no man. That's very interesting. Do you know that word? I looked it up in the Hebrew. It's tolaw. And this is a type of worm. It's a crimson maggot. Okay, and what happens is when it's crushed, it, it, it gives I mean, it's it just the red goes everywhere. And it has some type of habit of climbing up trees. And when it gets to the top, it, it bursts itself. It commits suicide. And the, the little worm children feed off of it to have life. Now, that sounds really gross. But look at that in a spiritual sense. Um, Jesus willingly came, went on, to, on that tree. He was affixed to that tree. And by his death, all, his, all, all of us have life. We're his spiritual children. So there's some significance in everything in here. Verse 9, it says, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust when I was on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. But you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. 
Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths as a raging and roaring lion. You can, um, you know, maybe when I go more into the Psalms and stuff, I'll really elaborate more, but there's a picture of evil. There's a picture of, of the evil, the spiritual realm and, and the people that surrounded him and they gaped with their open mouths, salivating for him to die on that cross. 14, I am poured out like wax and all my bones are out of joint. In the crucifixion, oftentimes they would stretch the arms and stretch the legs and it would cause the ligaments to pop. It would, wouldn't be uncommon for their shoulders to unpop as they were stretching them across that cross. Now remember, this is written a thousand years. It probably even predated crucifixion itself. My heart is like wax that is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Talk about um, dehydration, that whole process, any crucifixion victim would have been severely dehydrated. For dogs have surrounded me, the assembly of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, they look and stare at me. Piercing, okay, uh, all his bones can be counted. Uh, Jesus was the only one out of the three that they didn't have to break his legs, and the Roman soldiers would break the legs of the crucifixion victims if they had to make them die quickly, to, so that they could get them down and, and finish what they were doing. But it, as they went to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't have to break his legs. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. While that's fresh in your mind, turn to Isaiah 53. And that's what we're going to leave off. Isaiah 53. Again, while you're turning to Isaiah 53, keep in mind it was, this was written in the 8th century B.C. Again, many, many years before uh, Jesus even came to the earth. Isaiah 53. Verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. Certainly at the time, the dry ground was a, a, a society of people who had turned aggregately from God. And he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, many, many take that to believe as, that when you would, if you saw him today in his physical appearance, he wouldn't look like all those pictures that you have painted in your house. He probably wasn't terribly attractive, and that wasn't the whole point. He didn't come as a charismatic leader. He came with a message. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. I have to stop there. People erroneously believe that by his stripes we are healed means that because of the scourging from the Roman soldiers, somehow that, that translates into our salvation. There is nothing that man can do to achieve salvation. So the whippings, this doesn't mean that. As a matter of fact, the word uh, stripes is a Hebrew word, which is a noun and it's feminine and singular Hebrew. What it really, when you go into the, the meaning of that word, it means a, a crushing blow, a heavy bruise. They've translated it to be stripes, but if you look at the Hebrew, there's a pool of words, and uh, what it really means is that the, the blow that he got from God in taking the sins of the world is why we're healed, not because of a, a Roman stabbing him or whipping him. So let's get that out of our heads. 
And we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I, I mean, are you getting the, the, the picture of this? As a sheep led to the slaughter. Jesus was, was led as the sacrificial lamb. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Again, what really should blow you away is the time frame that this was written in. A lot of the prophets, the Bible says, when God gave them the message and they wrote it down, they looked into it and they didn't get it. They just were obedient. And only until all things were fulfilled and they saw the actual uh, prophecies all come to light in the first century, all those prophets who had, who had passed on probably were like, oh, that's what it means. You see what I'm saying? It even said that angels desire to look into some of these fulfillments. Verse 8, so he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Okay, so he didn't have children. I don't care what the Da Vinci Code says. He, didn't ha he has no, who will declare his generation? So he, he had no descendants. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death. And we'll see as we go on that the, uh, he was laid in a tomb from a rich man because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Pretty impressive, understanding especially the time period. And that's what God does. He, he makes things so impossible that you look at it face value, and when it comes to pass, you say, well, that could only have been from God. There's no way it happened like that. But as with many people or examples in the past regarding Jesus, here we also have a similar polarization even to his death. You had the centurion. You had the onlookers, other victims of crucifixion. All took extreme positions when it came to Jesus. That day, a pagan, polytheistic centurion conceded to a monotheistic God and the Messiah's own people espousing vitriol upon him. It's pretty amazing. Two criminals were crucified, uh, one on the right side and one on his left side, one blaspheming the Son of God and the other confessing his sins and believing the Son of God. One man that day died in his sins. The other man had his life of sins forgiven and stood before God a justified man. The conclusion is, again, these are pictures of society. We all fit into one of these historical characters, all of us. So the question is, what about you? You know the story, you know his life, you know the sacrifice he made. That will either cause you to repent of your sins and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you will resist and stay dead in your sins. Those are the only two choices you have. The choice is yours, but don't wait too long because Psalm 144 says that man is like a breath and his days like a passing shadow. Let's pray.